Well, good morning. My name is Adam, if we haven't had the chance to meet, and it's great to have you with us today. You know, last weekend, my wife uh, Molly and I got to go away for our anniversary, kid-free, which was amazing. We slept in past 5 a.m., we enjoyed the peace and the quiet, we relaxed, we rested, and we read some books, which I'm sure you're not surprised by. Now, in particular, one book that I read was this one. It's called The Last Green Valley by Mark Sullivan. Now, it's historical fiction, and it's set in the final years of World War II. It tells the story of the Martell family, Emil Martell, his wife Adeline, and their two boys. They are sixth-generation Germans, and they've been living in Ukraine. Now, with the end of the war coming closer, with the Germans retreating to the east and the Russians advancing from the west, the Martels face a decision. Will they flee west with the Germans, the Nazis, who have promised their protection of them? Or will they stay in the Ukraine and will they face the the Russians when they arrive? Now, the Martels have lived under the horrific regime of Stalin before, so they decide we're not doing that again, and they flee west with the Germans in search of freedom. Now, their trek for freedom is really a horrific journey. They are bombed, they're beaten, they're starved, and without giving the the story away too much, in case you want to read the book yourself, they even end up separated for a number of years. But throughout their journey of really unimaginable suffering, there's something that motivates them to keep going, to keep moving forward. And it's the vision of where they're going. It's the vision of a green valley. See, after one particularly horrific day, they've been chased by tanks, they haven't had anything to eat, it's freezing cold. Their little boy, Will, he's four years old, He turns to his mom and he says, tell me again, mama, about where we're going. And Adeline, the the mom of of this little four-year-old boy, she replies and she says, it's a beautiful place. It's surrounded by mountains and forests and snow up high. And below, there will be a winding river and green fields. We will live in a warm home. And every morning, I will bake bread for you. And there will be a big garden in the back And we'll have so much food, we won't know what to do with it all. This vision of a better future, this hope of a a green valley and a warm home, it's what motivates them to keep persevering, to keep moving forward, and to not give up. And the reason I bring this up is because this is what hope does. Hope enables us to keep moving forward, to overcome fear, to fight despair, and to not give up. In fact, there's a a clinical psychiatrist. I'm not sure if he's a, a believer or not, but this is what he says about hope. He says, if I could find a way to package and dispense hope, I would have a pill more powerful than any antidepressant on the market. Hope is often the only thing between man and the abyss. As long as a patient, individual, or victim has hope, They can recover from anything and everything. However, if they lose hope, unless you can help them get it back, all is lost. 
Now, I'm certainly not a clinical psychiatrist, and I'm not saying that hope is the only thing you need to overcome depression and the like, but I think the power of hope is undeniable. We all want hope, and we all need hope. The question then for us today is, where is our hope? Where is our hope for the future? What have we placed our hope in? Now, some of us might have some short-term hopes. We're just looking forward to getting to Christmas, some time with family, opening presents, you know, the joy of the season. Others of us are just looking forward to a holiday. It's been a big year, and we need a break. Others of us kind of have our eyes on the new year. We're looking forward to an opportunity to start afresh, to set new habits and new goals. Some of us are just hoping to see our family again sometime soon. We haven't seen them for a long time and we just long to be reunited. Others of us are hoping for a a clear scan or or a new job or a reconciled relationship. I mean, on and on we could go. We're, We're all hoping for something because we are undeniably hope based creatures. Now, the good news is that the Bible is undeniably a hope-filled book. The Bible is filled with wonderful promises from God to us about the future. And God doesn't give us these promises just to kind of pique our curiosity, but he gives them to fuel our hope, to help us keep moving forward, even when we're in the darkest valley, even when life is incredibly hard and difficult. And today, in Isaiah chapter 11, we actually come to one of the most hopeful passages in the Bible. We are given a vision of the ultimate future, which isn't just a green valley or a holiday or anything else, but it's actually a totally transformed cosmos under the reign of a totally perfect and totally good king. Now, if you haven't been around for the last few weeks, we have been in a series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet who lived about 3,000 years ago. He delivered God's message to God's people. And if you've been around for the last few weeks, you know that his message has been kind of bleak so far. There's been hints of hope, but he's essentially been saying to God's people, because of your complacency, because of your corruption, because of your injustice, because of your idolatry, you are going to come under my judgment. I'm going to remove you from the land and send you into exile. In fact, in chapter 10, immediately before chapter 11, God gives this vision of his people as kind of like a forest. And he says that they will actually be felled, cut down, and there will only be bare stumps as far as the eye can see. It's a vivid picture of God's judgment on the sin of his people. And this is a vision that would be fulfilled in the near future. Israel, the people of God in the north, they would be taken into exile by the Assyrians. Judah in the south, they would be taken into exile by the Babylonians. God's people would end up exiled in foreign lands. This is Isaiah's message, and yet it's not all of his message. Because what we see in chapter 11 and in other parts of Isaiah is that this will not be the end of the story. But actually, Isaiah returns to this imagery of a tree stump. And he says, from this tree stump, there will be a green shoot that will begin to grow. And that green shoot will actually grow so much that it will cover the entire world. 
the forest of God's people will be regrown and it will be more glorious than we could have ever imagined. Look at verse 9 of, of chapter 11. It says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everything and everyone will know, love, and worship God. And this is a vision that, that kind of breaks the banks of Isaiah's day. It flows into our day, but ultimately it's looking ahead to that future day when human history itself will be wrapped up for good and forever. I mean, this vision in Isaiah 11, it tells us where this cosmos is heading, and it tells us where you and I are heading if we will put our trust in God. And so if you're a Christian here today, I really hope and pray that this vision will fuel your hope Maybe you've walked in here today and you are feeling, if you're honest, a little bit discouraged and a little bit beaten down. Maybe you're even feeling like you would like to give up. I hope and I pray that this vision will fuel your hope, encourage you to keep going, to keep persevering, to run the race that is set before you. If you're not a Christian, I really hope that this vision in Isaiah 11 will will show you that the Christian hope is not just kind of pie in the sky. But actually, it is deeply compelling. And it's actually the future that we all long for. It's the hope that we all want and we all need. So, let's turn our attention to these nine beautiful verses. And what we see very simply when we look at them is that it tells us our hope for the future is really two things. Our hope is built on and based upon two things. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. Our hope is a person. Our hope is a person. Now, we're all tempted to put our hope in people. And this is a good thing at one level. We should all trust others and we should rely on others. But the fact is, we won't be able to be trustworthy and reliable perfectly or all the time. I mean, the truth is, we will hurt one another, disappoint one another, and let one another down. Even those who are closest to you. Even those you trust the most. I mean, it's true that you can't even rely on yourself totally. Have you ever let yourself down? Have you ever failed to meet your own standards? I know I have, and I know I continue to do all the time. You see, we need to put our hope in someone who is totally trustworthy and totally reliable. We need someone who is big enough and great enough to kind of bear the weight of our hope and our expectation. And the good news of this passage is that this is exactly what God gives us. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Isaiah says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. He's using that imagery of a tree stump. He says, From his roots a branch will bear fruit. So this shoot and branch imagery, it's describing an individual who would kind of rise up from the devastation of human sin and human evil, and they would begin to bear fruit and give us lasting life. In other words, Isaiah is telling that there is rescue on the way. There is salvation coming. This is the promise of a Messiah. Now the question is, how are we going to know who this is? How how are we going to discover the identity of this Messiah? Well, Isaiah tells us that they will come from the stump of Jesse. Now, who is Jesse? 
Well, Jesse was the father of King David. King David, well-known Old Testament figure, David and Goliath, it was his dad. And we know from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the Messiah would come from the royal line of David. This is why Jesus is so closely identified with David throughout the New Testament. Now, this begs the question, why would Isaiah not just say, from the stump of David? Why does he say, from the stump of Jesse? Well, Jesse, of course, was not as popular or as influential as David. And so, Isaiah is showing us something important about the Messiah. He's showing us that when he comes, he will come humbly, lowly, and obscurely. He won't be what we expect And this is what we see elsewhere in Isaiah. I mean, other prophecies about the coming Messiah tell us that he'll be born of a virgin. He'll be a young child. He'll even suffer and die. This Messiah will come humbly, lowly, and obscurely. And this is exactly what the kingdom of God is like. I mean, the kingdom of God is kind of like a tree stump. Now, a tree stump is not very impressive. It doesn't look very promising, does it? No one really has a garden of tree stumps in their backyard. At least not intentionally. Unless you, you, know, you don't have much of a green thumb. But it's just like Paul Kelly sings. From little things, big things grow. And that's exactly true of the kingdom of God. I mean, this is what Jesus said when he described the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. Matthew 13, he said, Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. See, this is what Isaiah is saying. He's saying the kingdom of God, when it comes in the Messiah, it will look unimpressive, it will not look very promising, and yet, like a mustard seed, it will begin to grow, and it will begin to bear fruit, and that fruit will be a whole new world. Now, you and I, we we get to see glimpses of that, don't we? Because here we are in Brisbane, Australia, on the other side of the world, thousands of years later, worshipping Jesus, and we can see the kingdom of God growing and moving and taking ground. And we look ahead to that day in the future when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Now, the question is, how is this going to happen? How is this promised Messiah going to bring about such a radical transformation? Well, Isaiah tells us in verse 2, look what he says. He says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And so this Messiah will not be like everyone else. This Messiah will not only be sent from God, but they will also be empowered by the Spirit of God. Now, do you remember what happened at Jesus' baptism? When he went under the water and he came out and the Spirit of God, like a dove, descended upon him. And the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That moment, Jesus' baptism, was a fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah because Jesus is the Spirit-filled Messiah. And this is why when Isaiah goes on to describe the character of this Messiah, what he's going to do, what he's going to be like, he is really describing the character of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was marked by wisdom and understanding. The teaching of Jesus has revolutionized the world. 
We had never seen anything like it until Jesus appeared. Jesus was marked by counsel and might. In other words, Jesus knew what you and I needed most, and he had the strength and the resolve to make it happen. Jesus, more than anyone else, was marked by a fear and a knowledge of of the Lord. I mean, he perfectly loved and obeyed the Father. The character of the Messiah here in Isaiah is reflected in the life of Jesus. That's why Ray Ortland says so pointedly in his commentary, and I just love, love what he writes. He says, unlike every other human leader in the sorry length of our history, Jesus is literally qualified to rule the world. We have nothing to fear from him. We are foolish to resist him. We can never be too loyal to him. Jesus was and is brilliant. There has never been anyone like him. And I wonder if that's what you think about when you think about Jesus. At Christmas time, it's easy to think about little baby Jesus born in the manger. But Jesus was and is brilliant. Now, Jesus' brilliance is not just for us kind of to admire from a distance, like we clap when we watch a performer or an athlete. Now, you see, Jesus is a ruler that we can know and that we can trust. Why? Because Jesus' rule is going to be marked by justice. He will do what is right. It's what Isaiah goes on to tell us in verses 3 to 5 when he says that Jesus will judge with righteousness. In other words, Jesus will set crooked things straight. Jesus will make wrong things right. And Isaiah specifically mentions the poor and the needy. That Jesus will do what is right for the poor and the needy. Now, why would Isaiah specifically mention this category of people? I don't know if you've ever heard this saying, but, and I don't know who um, said it, but I think it's very, very true. It says, the measure of a civilization, of a society, is how it treats its weakest members. The measure of a civilization is how it treats its weakest members. Well, under the rule of King Jesus, no one is forgotten. No one is stepped on. No one is manipulated especially not the poor, the weak, and the needy. In fact, if you want to know how far Jesus is willing to go for the downtrodden, the the weak, the needy, the poor, look at Christmas. Because Christmas tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, he was born into a tiny town to a poor family. He did not come as a a general or a politician or or a philosopher. He came as a carpenter's son. And he did not come to live in a big house. There were some nights he didn't even have a pillow to lay his head on. And when he preached, he he didn't preach only just to large crowds and at conferences. He fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he raised the dead. Why? Because this is why he came. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came for the weak, the needy, the lost, the forgotten. In fact, do you remember... Jesus' first ever sermon. It's a lot more memorable than my first ever sermon, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. Jesus walks into the synagogue, a place of worship in his hometown in Nazareth, and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah to read. And so, so what's he going to turn to? 
Well, he starts to flick through it, to roll through it until he eventually finds his place. A passage that we know is Isaiah 61. And this is what he reads out to the crowds who are awaiting on what he has to say. This passage from Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, after reading it, every eye in the room was on Jesus. And so he goes and he sits down. And then he says to everyone there, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he is saying, I am the spirit-filled Messiah. I am the one that Isaiah prophesied about hundreds of years ago. I have come with good news for the poor. My kingdom is not one of oppression or manipulation, but I have come to set people free. Jesus is the ruler we need. Jesus is the one in whom we can place our hope and our trust because he is righteous and he is just and he will make crooked things straight. Now, what does this mean for you and I today? Well, it means this very simply, trust Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus. You know, there is so much injustice around us. There's so much suffering And Jesus says to you and I, it will not always be this way. I will set crooked things straight. So put your hope and put your trust in Jesus. Secondly, it means that as followers of Jesus, we too are to be people of justice. We are to pursue and practice justice. We are to do what we can with what we have for the poor, the weak, the needy, the lost, the forgotten. And, you know, there's a a few ways that we do this as a church family. You've already heard about one with the New Life Orphanage. And I would encourage you to to give generously, if you can, towards the Christmas appeal. We partner with Compassion to sponsor 200 children around the globe to release them from poverty in Jesus' name. We support Scripture Union and, and, and high school chaplaincy. Of course, we do it through our care ministry in our community cupboard where we give out groceries to those in need every single week. Another way that we're doing it in the near future is through our community Christmas dinner. On Friday the 10th of December, we are inviting those who have connected with us through the community cupboard to come down to have a good meal, to be given some gifts, and to engage in conversation. And you know, we actually put the call out a few weeks ago for some volunteers to help out and the response was overwhelming. I mean, we have all the volunteers we need, so we, we don't need you anymore. Thank you. But what you could do is pray. Pray that God would soften hearts, open eyes, to see that Jesus is good news for the poor, the weak, the needy, the forgotten. Another way we can do this, perhaps, is through the Compassionate Catalogue. This is an initiative of our denomination. Hopefully, you received one on the way in highlights a number of our um, missions that we're involved in overseas. You can purchase goods and services for people in the Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, and in India as well to come alongside to help the poor, the weak, and the needy because we are followers of Jesus, the King who will do justice. 
course, there's lots of other things we can do, and we, we can't all do everything, but we can all do something. We can join Jesus in pursuing and practicing justice. See, our hope is a person. Not just any person, but Jesus, the perfect, righteous ruler. The one who will set crooked things straight. But that's not all that Isaiah shows us here in this vision. He not only shows us that our hope is a person, he also shows us that our hope is a place. Our hope is a place. Now again, we're all tempted to put our hope in places. If I can just get this job, if I can just move into this house, if I can just go on this holiday and so on and so forth. And that's, that's not wrong. It's understandable that we would put our hope in these things, but these things are mere shadows of the ultimate place that we're heading for. The place that is described for us here in Isaiah chapter 11. Because Isaiah paints this beautiful vision of the day when King Jesus returns and it's a, king, a kingdom of perfect justice and a kingdom of perfect peace. There's no danger, there's no violence, there's no hostility. I mean, do you remember what we read a moment ago? Wolves are kind of house sharing with lambs. Leopards are taking a nap alongside goats. Lions are hanging out with baby calves. Little children are, are playing with vipers. Now, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because it's just so foreign to us. I mean, when I took my kids to Australia Zoo, we, we didn't kind of ask if they could have a play in the brown snake enclosure. Australia Zoo didn't have the, the lions in the same enclosure as the zebras, although that would be relatively entertaining to watch. Maybe just me. It's just not the way that our world works. That's why Woody Allen said, the lion will lay down with the lamb, but the lamb won't get much sleep. I mean, we wonder, don't we, could our world really ever be this way? A world that's characterized by peace and, and no violence and no hostility and no division. And God's answer through the prophet Isaiah is yes. There is a day coming when the Messiah will return in all his glory and he will turn swords into farming instruments. We won't go to war with one another anymore. He will turn darkness into light. And he will turn predator and prey into bunkmates and best friends. Peace will be the air that we breathe. There'll be no harm or destruction ever again on God's holy mountain. And let me just say, isn't this what you long for? Isn't this what you want? For someone to do what is right. For someone to put an end to our oppression and violence and injustice and hostility and hatred and division and anger. For someone to enable us to sit down together peacefully in the presence of God. Well, according to Isaiah, it's not a pipe dream. It's ultimate reality, and it's found in Jesus. See, life won't always be this nasty or divided or painful. There is a day coming when peace will be the air that we breathe because the Prince of Peace will reign over all things. I love the way that Ray Ortland puts it again in his commentary. 
It says, when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea, the scars. We've all got scars, don't we? The scars of our ugliness will disappear forever under the overflowing healing of Christ. The human family will finally be one. The very environment will breathe with the peace of God and we will never hurt one another again. The victory of Jesus will be the awakening and purifying and restoring and gladdening of all things human. This vision in Isaiah 11 is our green valley. It's the vision that can help us to keep going, to keep moving forward. It's the future that God has promised for those who love him. Now the question is, how do we get in on this? How do we know that we'll be part of this? How do we know that we'll make it? Because I've got to be honest, when I hear Isaiah talking about the Messiah coming to do justice, to set wrongs right, to put an end to oppression and and injustice, it makes me a little bit nervous. Because I have done wrong. I have mistreated others. I have spoken poorly about others. I have brought about hostility in our world. I've been selfish. How can I possibly be part of this kingdom of perfect justice and perfect peace? And this is also why the Messiah came. Look at what Isaiah goes on to tell us about the Messiah in chapter 53. He came and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The blood that flowed from the cross was healing blood. It was our sins, our evil, our wrongs, our injustice that Jesus was dying for. I mean, Jesus climbed the mountain of Calvary to be destroyed, to be harmed, to be put to death so that one day you and I could ascend the mountain of the Lord where there will be no more harm, no more destruction, no more violence ever again. This is really the scandal of Christianity. The one who will deal with our wickedness and our evil is also the one who dies for the wicked. The one who stands in our place. The wounded healer. And he makes a way for us to come home. So the question is, where is your hope? Where have you placed your hope for the future? It's so easy to look around and become hopeless. It's so easy to feel discouraged and beaten down and destroyed. And God is putting us before us today this vision of the ultimate future. And he invites you to be part of it through the death and the resurrection of his son. Your sin doesn't disqualify you. Your past doesn't disqualify you. They're the very things that Jesus died for.
and he invites you to come home. And if you will, your future is brighter than you could ever imagine. Let me close with these words from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father, we have wounds and we have scars. And we can so easily feel discouraged and hopeless. Thank you for this reminder and this vision of our future and of ultimate reality. Thank you that there is a day coming when we will be healed, made whole in your presence forever. You will wipe away the tears from our face. So Lord, where we have placed our hope in other lesser things, help us to put our hope anew and afresh today in you, in your Messiah. Help us to keep running the race that is set before us and to not give up. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.